Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor, and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week, Roger Ehrenberg, managing director of IA Ventures, joins us on the podcast. Check out our entire archive of interviews at VentureStudio.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Google Play. Remember to subscribe on iTunes so you never have to miss an episode and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio to stay up to date. In today's episode, Roger discusses IA Ventures' investment focus and debunks a few rumors about big data in the process. He digs deep into portfolio theory for VCs and shares his insights about the difference between novel technology and novel insights. And now, without further ado, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Roger Ehrenberg. In the office, baby. Going up. Roger, it's great to have you on Venture Studio. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, David. Let's start by first going big picture on IA Ventures. Uh, from a thematic point of view, on your site, you talk about backing companies that create competitive advantage through data. But I know colloquially on the streets of New York, people say, oh, big data, you need to have a lot of data to go into IA Ventures. And I know that is such a cliche and big data really is an amorphous term, doesn't mean much. And you guys are incredibly specific about how you think about it. And you talk about terms like data centricity and stuff like that. Perhaps you could just elaborate on how you look at it and perhaps give us some examples from your portfolio that illustrate those themes. Sure. And you're right. At this point, big data has become such a, such a tortured overall term. And, you know, when we started the firm, you know, almost seven years ago, it was super effective in terms of branding and positioning and helping to at least create the kind of the macro notion that we were kind of engineering backgrounds, quantitative backgrounds. We understood the value of data assets and the enabling technologies around data. And that was an area that we wanted to create differentiated deal flow and where we could bring very particular expertise. Right. So fast forward to today where uh, you know, big, big data now is almost a, a meaningless term. Yeah. And in terms of how we've evolved as investors, we certainly don't think as we're looking at a business, is there big data here? Is there big data here? Um, if you look at kind of how our portfolios evolve, fund one and fund two, and obviously we're just now starting fund three, but fund one certainly started out with a much heavier enterprise bet, much more infrastructure emphasis, uh, data visualization, predictive analytics, security, yep. stuff like that. Yep. Fun too is, I would argue, much more eclectic, where we've got both from a, a vertical standpoint, but also just in terms of the underlying business model, where we've got, we've got marketplaces. We actually, we've, we did, we've done a bunch of marketplace stuff. We've done infrastructure as a service. We've done a lot in healthcare, which we had really looked at for almost four years until making an investment, and, and now we, we have five healthcare investments yeah, yeah. in the portfolio. 
And of course, alternative financial services has always been, you know, an area of interest, in particular of Jesse and May. So, I think if you take a step back and look at the businesses that we're attracted to, there is always some data element to it, but we don't screen companies on that basis. It's just naturally what we're attracted to. Things where either from a customer standpoint, you're generating a lot of data and you can then apply analytics frameworks to really understanding how you're engaging with customers and how the business is performing. So that would be one way to say, okay, uh, how a, a company like Home Team, right, which is a marketplace for in-home healthcare, well, there's valuable data there and we subject their user data to rigorous analytics, sure, but would you say that's big data in the sense of a company like a MemSQL, right, which is a, you know, lightning quick in-memory analytics database. No, they look totally different, but for us, they have those same underlying principles. You know, over the years, I've noticed that you have segmented and categorized companies, you know, that can be generally put in the space of this, this you know, data-type companies. You've, you've mentioned stuff like contributory database companies, you know, different themes like the data aggregation and cleansing and indexing and then the importance of user experience and UI, et cetera. Tell us a little about the contributory data platforms. I thought that was fascinating. I, I have seen a lot of companies now that do that, and it, it really is fascinating. Yeah, it's like some of the stuff that we identified as these distinct themes, I, I almost think aren't even themes anymore because they're just, they've become so commonplace, kind of the, you know, the notion of giving to get. And you know, this is something that started arguably on Wall Street, you know, with industry consortia, where in order to get the benefits of a new marketplace that you would need to guarantee a measure of order flow, and then you would gain visibility into everybody's order flow, or even something like, um, you know, BARA, where you contribute your own portfolio data, and in exchange, you get back aggregated data of everybody, so you get these industry-wide insights and are then able to benchmark yourself. And people will pay for that. So you're giving something and then you're effectively paying for enhancements of a much greater, broader data set. Um, but today, it's, um, it's just, it's, it's, so many businesses just have this in, embedded in it, the notion of even you know, when you talk about data privacy, we as consumers are effectively contributing our data every day and then getting stuff in return, like a better, a better browsing experience, more targeted opportunities, um, higher, granular, higher granularity services. So, and it's, right, and it's not just about advertising, it's about actually giving somebody a service that's better because you're able to let somebody look at your behavior and say, this is just right for you. So I think we're all contributing to the notion of contributory data where it was, again, I think, as we were figuring out what we were most passionate about and where we really had a view, that was one of those things that was, hadn't been articulated in that way previously, yet the combination of kind of my Wall Street experience and then seeing this evolution in all of us becoming data contributors to kind of hone in on that as a theme. Right. Since you started IA Ventures, this whole field has, has just exploded. And so much of it has become commonplace and sort of on the back end. And uh, So let me put it this way. With that 
data-centric lens that you guys have and that data-centric DNA at, at IA Ventures, what do you see now that looks very interesting to you, very novel? So, so funnily enough, we're really, we're less, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily the firm that's on the bleeding edge of novel from the standpoint of tech, partly because of who we are and what we like to do, partly because of the size of our fund and the way we invest. So given the fact that we are still on the smaller end of the continuum relative to you know, the more traditional Series A and B firms, um, together with the fact that we run a concentrated portfolio, really means that it's, it's very hard for us to invest in pure new tech where the cost of entry is, is high. And where, you know, for us, what we're really looking to do, David, and this is something we've spent these, all of these years refining, and we're constantly refining how we codify our strategy and, and the product that we're offering to entrepreneurs, which we've wanted to standardize as much as possible and be incredibly clear and transparent about that, really relates to kind of companies being able to get to a full-on Series A, so hitting the, the, the measures and metrics necessary to raise a great Series A from a great Series A firm on something around $5 million. So this then fits into our model of where you know, we can and have many times been first money in, but I would say the most common profile for us is a company's done an angel round or a friends and family round, some small pre-seed round between call it a million and two million where it's not enough to get them to full-on series a metrics so so many first-time founders think well now i can go raise a series a and the answer is no you're nowhere near being able to raise a series a but they've done some really great things have not demonstrated product market fit yet but have early product and market have started to collect some feedback but there's still you know a ton of hypothesis testing to do that's really the optimal spot for us where we can work very closely with them on saying what must be true in order for you to raise a great Series A and then effectively to instrument what are the measures and metrics that correspond to those hypotheses that would serve to prove them true. And where we can then you know, write a check of you know, between one and three million to take them to that point and then, you know, be able to do pro rod and oftentimes super pro rod in Series A's, pro rod is in B's, and then kind of sunset by the C. So this is uh, a much richer answer to a very simple question, which is what do we find novel? And what I'm saying is pure new tech, not a great fit for us because the cost of entry is so high. Right. We're, I would, I would say, much more focused on novel insights that founders have about either an existing market where they have secrets yes. that would cause that market to unfold in different ways, expand where they have tailwinds, or the creation of a market that doesn't yet exist, where they, again, and those are incredibly risky, but we're in the risk business, they can articulate a vision around why this this new market is actually going to evolve separate from this one that everybody already is familiar with, yet they can own that 
those are those tend to be the opportunities that are better fits for us. Got it. Got it. I mean, how this has evolved over the years is, is amazing. I mean, um, and you know, you've you've evolved from an angel with a, a, a very big portfolio. I remember in the mid sort of 2004, 2005 timeframe, you started to really get heavy into angel investing. Uh, and you backed a lot, frankly, you backed a lot of the big, what became some of the big New York exits like Buddy Media and others. And then I remember, you know, you, you institutionalizing and raising IA and it had these principles and missions, etc. But as it's evolved, you know, you've iterated over time and there's a, there's certain pragmatic aspects that are involved here in terms of the climate that we're in, the, the constraints of having to manage other people's money, right? Sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, David. I feel like our, you know, so my, my angel track record and I guess reputation together with the vision of IA, you know, helped, helped us brute force our first fund. And then, of course, bringing in Brad and then ultimately Jesse um, were critical to um, not only expanding the team, but even more importantly, bringing skills and competencies that were very, very complementary. So the three of us really have this kind of symbiotic relationship where we each bring something distinct yet have common values and kind of a shared vision for how to interact with founders. But the, but the product that we offer has evolved tremendously. Yes. And, and I, I actually give, you know, Brad and Jesse 99% of the credit for this, how they really focused on everything from the documentation and how I'm reasonably comfortable saying that we have the cleanest, easiest, simplest documents in the institutional seed business. Like literally a one and a half, not, it's not even a one and a half page Please term elaborate. sheet. Okay. Sure. Where it's, you know, basically just dips to the NVCA template mm -hmm. and where, you know, we really structure that initial investment more along the lines of an experiment where we don't, we don't ask for a board seat. We don't even create the notion of a board necessarily. Sometimes founders want it and that's okay. But for us, it's not about control. It's not about governance. It's about building alignment and building good behaviors and running a series of well-defined experiments to see, in fact, if this company warrants Series A funding and can actually make that step into being a true, scalable, venture-backable company. Right. A quick interruption on that. To, to me, the, the, there's a beauty to that because you know, instinctively it hits me as it's just wisdom. It's just years of doing this stuff and realizing we can discard a lot of the formality uh, that were imposed on, on these seed rounds and make them something that they're not. And we can focus all our energy on, as, as you say, the alignment and the relationship and just the pragmatic needs of the company without the artifice of, of a board and all the, all this heavy paperwork at a stage where, you know, those of us who are in the trenches know it's a lot of experimentation and trying and, and uh, you know, there's no formula for it, right? Uh, right. I mean, we, we, we certainly have a series of processes and an approach, but in terms of whether or not this company 
moves from experiment stage to actually this is a true venture scale opportunity where other investors join us at scale to help finance growth plans, you know, that's an 18 to 24 month process. And sometimes if companies shoot the lights out, that happens sooner and that's wonderful. And other times it may take even a little bit more time. And if it really is a function where we and the founders believe that those series A metrics and measures can in fact be hit, but for instance, there was a decision made after nine months that a couple of the original hypotheses, may, they may have been the wrong questions. And then they're doing really good things, they need a little bit more money, a bridge or whatever. You know, when we invest in a company, what we basically do is say, is we, we set $3 million to the side. Now, if our first check is two million, we basically have another million allocated to that company. And this is all before getting to a Series A. So basically, we look at a portfolio as being something between 20, 23 and 28 experiments. Those experiments, we are initially assigning $3 million to. That doesn't mean the first check. That means the total amount that we're allocating to those experiments. So initial investment plus potential bridge capital should not be needed. However, for those companies whose experiments prove to be successful, where they are able to raise great series A's, yes. we then have this next bucket. We kind of bucket companies into best of fund and best of firm. Best of fund companies are successful in raising Series A's. So those companies for us, we're generally thinking six million-ish yep. over the life. Mm -hmm. best, and so we expect roughly a third of the portfolio to be best of fund. Mm -hmm. Best of firm, we expect two companies to fall into that category in each portfolio, which will attract 10 to $12 million over the life, okay? So this is just, as we model the portfolio, the idea is initially we're offering the same product to every company. Yep. Super transparent, easy to document, and by the way, in this complete, and this is, this is a priced round, the thing is the way we do it, it is no harder to do our priced round than it is a note, yet you have the clarity, the simplicity, the lack of ambiguity from day one. Wow. So that is just a really clean way, align motives, yeah. everything's on the table, no rolling up of lick preferences, right. bang, okay? So mm -hmm. that's how we engage with every company. Then, and you know, and on average, you know, we're, we're each making, call it two to three investments a year. You know, that's the other thing, David. We're really running a very traditional 1980s venture strategy. And this isn't to say that the market is not evolving and there's not angel list and crowdfunding and all this stuff. We believe there's a tremendous opportunity and in doing old-style venture, starting pre-product you know pre -product market fit, right. owning a significant chunk of the business, right. taking enormous early risk, but then by building this deep alignment with founders, 
by doing a lot of pre-work before we ever invest. So as opposed to trying to build a huge horizontal portfolio, which could enable us to get exposure to, you know, to some of the more, you know, newer technologies, unproven, how to, how to commercialize it, but really just going super deep with a smaller group of founders, we believe that we can create extraordinary returns. And the size of the, the, the third fund? 160. 160. So you have plenty of dry powder. We just started uh, it. So we literally oh, okay. have $160 million. <laughs> okay. Uh, Congratulations on that. Where I was going was, you know, you've, you've, you reserve nine, you know, something on the order of $90 million for these 28 experiments. And then you have plenty of dry powder to oh. follow on in subsequent rounds uh, as, as things evolve through Series A and beyond. Yeah it's, yeah, it's probably more. Yeah, it's probably more like yeah, like seventy-five million for the experiments, and then and then the balance. And of course, you know, then there we. In so, if you look at our first fund, we have invested almost one hundred and twenty percent of committed capital. So, of our fifty million dollar fund, we've actually invested close to sixty million, because we have recycled gains back into the portfolio. Um, so, you know, if you think of a $50 million fund, there's roughly $10 million of fees over the life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 80% of a fund is X fees, the, the capital that you have to deploy. But of course, limited partners really want you to invest 100%. They want you to, in, they want you to recycle up to that. LPs and GPs who have deep belief in their companies will want to invest even more than that. LPs love it because they're effectively getting fee-free leverage yeah. on their capital. You know, I'm a huge GP, um, a huge LP in funds, in all of our funds. So for me, if I believe that there's a 5x plus return opportunity on that marginal dollar in a Series B round in one of our companies, would I want us to invest in that? The answer is hell yes. Hell yes. But, and as would our LPs who really look at us because of our, we've got a very sophisticated institutional LP base, they're, they're looking for us to continue to compound their capital. They don't want the money back unless it is, yes, its highest and best use is back in your hands, not being redeployed in the portfolio. And we've reached that point in fund one, where now any, the next dollar that comes back in fund one will be a distribution to LPs. But, you know, we've had some nice exits in fund one that, have used, that we've used to basically fund that $20 million delta between what we've invested, the 60, and the 40, which is the committed capital X of fees. So we've reinvested 20 million of gains. Amazing. That's, that's, that's tremendous. So, one, so my point is 160 could actually be 200 yeah. when you take into account recycling. Right. And, and that shows a deep alignment between your LPs and what you guys are doing, which, which is tremendous. And, I, and, I, and, and you've talked about this before. When you started IA, you really, m most of your LPs, from, from what I understand, were you know, the Thomson Reuters and, and, and bigger institutions with whom you had pre-existing relationships. So there was, there was a lot of alignment from, from the get-go. And so the, 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 the great fortune we've had is that, you know, so when... <laughs> Um, we kind of brute forced that first closing on 17 million in early 2010, you know, in the wake of a really, you know, crappy market um, where we really didn't look to traditional LPs for our initial capital. When we did really well in the first part of, you know, first half of 2010 and then had this 
wall of institutional interest come in and we you know, increase what was a $25 million fund to 50, the institutions that came in were all of a similar mindset, which was, uh, you know, we chose those institutions who we felt could be our partners and mentors. And what we offered to them was incredible transparency and dialogue. And what they offered to us was capital, insight, data on their own experiences mm. and mentorship. And that has merely uh, continued to evolve over these years. So we, we personally feel that we have the best investor base in the business and we're incredibly blessed to have the, the partners and mentors that we've got to them. So we've kind, we've, we've kind of talked about the evolution within IA over these years. What about, what are you seeing in, in New York City in terms of its evolution? I mean, because you've been an angel for probably, you started as an angel, now you're a professional VC, but you've probably been investing in startups for 10, 11, 12 years straight in New York yeah. City. So you're one of the earliest folks who's done that consistently and on a large scale. You know, how, how does it look to you? What, what has been changing? I mean, I, I think that one of the things I like a bit about the way that the New York venture scene has evolved is it's certainly it had that rapid explosion and bust you know, in the, the early aughts. But what's happened in this next phase is it's been very gradual. And I feel like strength is built upon strength. And partly it's a function of, there's been increases in the amount of venture capital, but not tremendous. Firms have stayed pretty, they haven't, separating out like the growth firms, like the, the insights and people like that, that whatever. I mean, I, I put those in a different segment. I'm talking about the, the seed A and B firms. You know, there's just, it's a fairly small, tight-knit group. And it's, I would say, very, very collegial. We all know each other there. Even though it's obviously a competitive business, it doesn't feel competitive in a negative way. So capital availability has gone up, but not dramatically. So all of a sudden... Everyone's scurrying around, just trying to edge everybody out. So that, that's kind of one piece of it. And the other piece of it, which, which you've certainly had a direct hand in, is the evolution of university involvement. And whether it's Columbia, NYU, now with Cornell Tech, I mean, you can feel it starting to change. You know, I was just up at Columbia, you know, with the, the Data Science yep, Institute. Yep. So it's a... <laughs> I've, and you're seeing great machine learning people coming out of Columbia Eng, and it's you can feel it happening. Okay, but it's it, but it's happening in a very measured way, which I think for this market is really healthy because it takes at least in my limited experience in venture. I'm I'm no Fred Wilson. I don't have 30 years of longitudinal data, but I've got call it 12. Yeah. So not a newbie, but not someone like Fred. Um, this is going to take at least a generation, if not more. Mm -hmm. And that should be okay. Right. Because as the entire economy, and not just the New York economy, the economy writ large is reshaping. Yes. And by necessity, right. I, entrepreneurship and innovation is going to be a cornerstone of how that happens. And that's something that if it's done in this haphazard way without the buy-in, without the strong underpinnings of the university system, of um, 
tech transfer, of the city, of the venture community, it's got to all hang together. So in that way, I feel really great about New York and even, you know, the kinds of companies that we're seeing, you know, are increasingly more, have more core tech than they've had in the past. Mm-hmm. And then, then you've got to you know, look at a company like DigitalOcean, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful company. You know, my partner Brad led that investment and IA is you know, among the lead investors in that company and led their seed round. Uh, I mean, that's just a wonderful thing for New York. Let's talk briefly about talent. You know, you, you touched on, you know, the universities kind of stepping it up, coming into their own. I've, I, I've seen Cornell. I think Cornell Tech is fantastic. I know the guys there and I know Frank Rimolovsky at NYU and what a job sure. they're doing. And I see in our, in our own world at Columbia, a great emergence of an ecosystem uh, the lab downtown, a new design studio that we just launched, just great stuff out of engineering. I see the city coming together, working together, as you said, in a collegial way, different institutions not looking at each other as in, a, in a competitive way, but in a collaborative way, which is wonderful. I think everyone's rowing together and, and sees this, and, but you're, you're on the front lines of seeing talent emerging, uh, which is the lifeblood uh, of these companies that you back. Where is the talent coming from? What, what are you seeing in that respect? The talent pool in New York is certainly getting deeper, both as a function of people relocating here, as well as more people coming out of universities and going into the startup community. Um, I think another element which is necessary for a healthy, functioning, growing talent pool and ecosystem are companies that grow and spit people out Mm -hmm. where they then go to smaller companies. So there's some people that they want to work for a startup. Startups become really successful. Like is Uber a startup? Of course not. You know, and then you could, you could argue, you know, is a company, you know, the scale of AppNexus a startup? Arguably not. But there are, when companies reach a certain scale, there's a subset of their worker base that says, you know what? I want to get back to the startup experience. They've worked there three or four years. Options are vested. They've learned a ton. They've given a ton. And now they want to do something different. They want that startup experience again. But they're going to these new companies with all of this valuable experience having been part of what success looks like. So I think getting that flywheel going, well, you, you, you see it from Buddy Media. I mean, the number of companies that the Buddy Media Mafia has spun out is enormous. I think, I think to your point, you know, with these companies that have been successful, like the Buddy Medias of the world and others, putting, you know, injecting new talent into the next wave, that, that's huge. And we're, I guess we're just starting to see a lot of that. Right. Uh, maybe for the first time. I see a lot of people in the university space and elsewhere saying, wow, you know, this is, this is real now. Uh, and we're seeing people who in the past normally would not have been attracted to the startup space saying, wow, this is a legit environment now. You know, it's not like it was when we had the pioneers 10 years ago, right, who were taking leaps when people were saying, well, are you insane? And I think you're probably one of them, if I'm not mistaken, because because a lot of people don't know this about, I happen to know this about you, about 11, 12 years ago, 
you were this huge derivatives and quant trading guy at Deutsche Bank, and they were asking you to run these huge hedge funds, and you had just started angel investing, and you really liked it, and you said, for, for whatever reason, you said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Let's, let's just focus in on that time for a moment. You know, were people saying, Roger, you're insane. What are you doing? What was going on when you decided to do this? There was definitely a measure of confusion and just people who were just agog that I would leave a lot of money on the table to, in fact, do the exact opposite. Not only not make huge money, but invest money and not make any money. So it was like the exact opposite. David, look, I mean, I I was incredibly fortunate to have had an 18-year run on the street, you know, 12 years at City, six years at Deutsche, where I I have absolutely no regrets. I worked with amazing people. I learned a tremendous amount. To this day, I can sit down and talk to somebody about capital markets, and I get super excited. It's it's in my it's in my blood, but there was there was the time in in the middle of '04 where you know I was you know running this huge business. It was very political, and I essentially was forced to restructure it because of the banks changing risk tolerance. So something that I had really joined with a mandate to grow and had the capital allocated from the bank to do that effectively was ripped away. And I went from being a business builder to a business restructurer. And so it was emotionally really hard. And then the other thing was I looked across the street. I looked across Deutsche first, and then I spoke to some people externally, you know, about, you know, whatever, running hedge funds or whatever. And Man, I just knew I was done. There just wasn't another role that got me super excited. And again, I had the good fortune to, you know, make some decent bank so I could I could not work for a bunch of time and, and invest money um, in order to see if this whole new life, you know, the five datings, five meetings a day, five days a week for five years you know, seeding 40 companies, you know, if I was any good at this and if there's something that I wanted to spend the next leg of my career doing. And so I will tell you, my friend, in the depths of 08, there were some, there were some nights, some sleepless nights, looking at myself in the mirror being, what an idiot, like, what did I do? So it's funny, it's like I have a level of empathy for startup founders that, mm, I think a lot of people don't really have because I effectively was my own startup and had taken enormous financial risk yes. to do that. Tremendous illiquidity. Yet, and I would say, you know, being again fortunate to be married to the most wonderful woman in the world who was incredibly supportive and who was like, don't even think of going back. You laid out a strategy. The strategy makes sense. You're doing good things. Stay the course. Which, of course, as a trader, I know, but living it and supporting a family was very, very difficult, but just kind of steeled myself for that, you know, 12 to 18 months of pain. And then, of course, coming out in 09 
And then into 2010, it was certainly good that I just chilled and continued to do what I was doing. Let me ask you this. You know, you're incredibly thoughtful. You've been at this uh, uh, such a long time. You write a wonderful blog, Information Arbitrage. And by the way, I, I, I want people to know there are some ridiculously good templates on the IA site for board decks, SaaS dashboards, investor update emails. I've been looking for this stuff for a long time, so I'm going to use them. People, people, I mean, don't start from scratch. Just, just look at those things. That, that's very useful. And I know you're also a huge baseball guy. <laughs> I know you're a baseball coach, and, and your sons play baseball, and they're, they're very good pitchers. We're, I want to talk about this, this post that uh, Dixon wrote about. Chris Dixon wrote called The Babe Ruth Effect. Yeah, yeah. Fred Wilson go wrote something about losing, losing money. money. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I know them. I know them both very well. <laughs> the people right. and the posts. Right. So, so just to tee it up, Chris Dixon, also incredibly thoughtful, thoughtful guy, brilliant nice guy. Job. You know, is is saying when you look at the data and some LPs gave him some incredible data. This is not an unknown thing, but you know, something like six percent of the investments lead to sixty percent of the returns, and it's really not. A home run business. It's a grand slam business that you're right. in. Do you buy that? How do you how do you how do you conceive that? And then weave in Fred's thoughts about sure. the willingness to basically lose a lot of money in this business. So the it's the posts are actually should be required reading for GPs and LPs and founders alike. Uh, they actually relate very, very closely to one another. You know, Chris's post provides the math and also highlights the, I, I mean, for me, the way I look at it, and I, I, again, I know this having been a trading manager for so many years, um, you know, we're wired with this notion of risk aversion. Yes. And risk aversion is probably the greatest failing one can have as a venture capitalist. Because this business is not about protecting loss, it's about amplifying gain, which at times can put you at odds with founders for whom they have one company and you, VC, have lots of companies. So you're playing a portfolio math game and they're playing in single player mode. So I think part of being a great investor and something that I aspire to, and why I look to some of my mentors, like Fred Wilson, mm-hmm. for guidance, yes. is how to balance those two dynamics, where you and the founder are aligned, and where there are going to be steps along the way in great businesses where founders have the opportunity to step off. Yep. And you as a VC may think, huh, hmm, there's a lot of room to run here. So how do you deal with that dynamic? Mm-hmm. Right? Which is why things like partial founder liquidity have emerged, things that will keep founders in their seats while providing a measure of kind of I'm an idiot protection in case the world ends and I had this thing and now I have nothing. Totally, right. So that's, that's one piece of it, right? which is risk aversion as a VC is bad. Okay, and that is a, a wired-in evolutionary protection mechanism. Sure. Then, to, and so then to Fred's point, this notion of losing money, 
whose more limited data set does more or less tie into Chris's, which is a very small number of companies drive the lion's share of returns and almost everything else is meh or right. zero. Right. And that is also truth. Mm-hmm. But, but what Fred's post brings in another dimension, which is how, how can you be, how can you be an ethical investor who discharges your fiduciary duty to your LPs while at the same time being empathetic to founders and helping unsuccessful companies transition in the best way possible. Yes. So it's not, and Fred was very clear to say that doesn't mean giving them more money. It means working with them to either find a soft landing, winding down ethically, there's a whole range of things, but it, what, he, what he basically said is there's the traditional argument that you want to spend all your time on your winners and none of your time on your losers, and Fred debunks that by saying who you are as an investor is partly driven by how you deal with your losers. Mm. Wow. And he's exactly right, and that was actually, I, actually when I tweeted that post out, mm-hmm. I also referenced somebody named Lyndall Ekman, who used to run privates at Utimco. He was an original LP, Utimco, in Foundry and USV, if you can believe that. Unbelievable. Uh, Pioneer. Pioneer. Also, one of my close mentors. And he told me that probably four years ago, that that was something that he looked at as a measure of character, yeah. it, it, that it's not, and this is somebody as an LP who you might think is motivated to say, ah, screw the losers. Right. Just don't waste your time. Your, don't waste your time. And he's like, no, no, no. You need to do the right thing. And again, this is separate from more money. It has to do with how you support founders in this very, very hard time. Gotcha. No. So I, I think the two posts are must-reads. You, you've written about what you think entrepreneurs should look for in an investor. You wrote a post some years ago, The Good Investor. There's some great wisdom in that. Don't be a fawning enabler. You know, have the tough conversations. What were the substance of those thoughts? And if you're comfortable, who, who do you like working with in the, in the venture community? So certainly I think the healthy dynamic with 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 a founder is where there's there's a space of mutual respect that you can be blunt and honest and where it's not always rah-rah but it's being able to provide constructive criticism in a way that founders can hear but that founders are necessarily open to so you know there are certain founders that don't want to hear anything from anybody and some of them are incredible money makers and if you find those yeah. and you're okay dealing with those kinds of personalities, that's, that's fine. I think they tend to be fairly unusual and they're almost never, at least again, in, in our limited experience, we haven't found too many first time founders that fit that mold. I do think the basis for an honest trust relationship where thing, it's just there's hyper transparency on both sides, right? So it's less about 
managing us. There is always, we're, everyone's always wanting to manage relationships and try and communicate in ways that people can hear. But we respond much better to people who are really transparent, good and bad, mm-hmm. instead of just selling. Yeah. Right? And, and we respect that in our co-investors. Um, I'm... Because we have so many co-investors, I'm not sure I'm comfortable sing- singling out, uh, but we definitely, I would say one of, the, one of the biggest things that we bring to our companies is we're extremely good at raising money from great co-investors. So, so not even talking firms, talking individuals. The right people in the right company at the right time. And that's something we really pride ourselves on and spend a lot of time curating those co-investors because it's obviously such a critical dynamic because they're, they're taking board seats and they're having a seat at the table at a fairly early stage that can have a, you know, a material impact on the company. Roger, thank you so much. This took directions that I never expected. I really <laughs> appreciate it. It was really a lot of fun. Thank you, my friend. We'll do it again. Sounds good, David. Take care. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? 